Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer once again. Father in heaven, um, we pray for our people. We pray for each other. We are needy. We, we are weighed down in this world. And we pray for your comfort and for your support and your strength and your power in the midst of of our lives. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are with us today and uh, struggling with a, uh, a besetting sin, that there is a, uh, a rebellion uh, left unquashed in their heart, that they can't seem to shake, and we pray, Father, that they would put that sin to death by the power that you give us in your Spirit, by your grace and your grace alone. Help us to encourage those individuals, to surround them, to come around them, May they have the freedom to bring their struggle to the light of your grace. Father, we pray uh, for those who are wrestling at at their jobs and their their work. Um, They're dissatisfied. They are frustrated, maybe at times angry. We pray, Father, that you would give them the spirit of peace. We pray that you would help them to see that you work all these things for the good of those who love you and in that promise lay down their frustrations about an imperfect world knowing that it is you who will make it perfect. We pray for those who are struggling with family relationships that are not what they desire them to be. Where disbelief or sin or pride have come in the way and come in between people that you have brought together. We pray, Father, for the graciousness to forgive and the peace to live amidst those who will not forgive. And we pray, Father, for any enmity between members of this body, that any hurt feelings, any misspoken words, any callous slip of the tongue would find repentance and find forgiveness in any case that we might be one even as you and our Savior are one. We pray that in looking to your word we would be shaped by it and brought into further unity, brought into gospel faithfulness, and brought, Father, toward the godliness and Christ-likeness that is proper for saints. It's in the name of our Savior that we pray. Amen. You open your Bibles to uh, Matthew, Matthew, Genesis chapter 5, first book of the other testament we are working through a uh, a series in the first roughly 11 chapters of the book of genesis we got a couple uh in-betweens uh, there and then we'll do something christmas 
themed um, before we get into the new year. But right now, we've made our way to chapter 5 of the book of Genesis, and so I'm going to read that. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered his son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Canaan were 910 years and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters, Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth, or excuse me, the universe, wow, that's, that's great. That was bound to happen one of these Sundays. Um, the, the universe is, we're told, 13.7 billion years old. The solar system that we are in is 4.571 billion years old. That's like almost exactly one-third of the existence of the universe. Thank you, sir. It's the only way we're ever going to get Chris on camera. Um, uh, the earth itself came a little bit later, 4.543 billion years ago, which is about 33%, just under a third of the life of the universe. But life itself didn't begin until about 3.7 billion years ago, about 27% of the existence of the universe. Multicellular life, 1.56 billion years ago. That's a, just over 11% of the, 
of the life of the universe. 550 million years ago, vertebrate life. That's 4% of the existence of the universe. Human life, 0.002% of the life of the universe. And the average human lifespan is 73.4 years. So if the age, that is, by the way, 0.00000000535% of the age of the universe. If the universe existed in a single day, the average human life would be less than 0.0001 seconds. One-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of one-tenth of a second. Even Methuselah lived just over 0.001 seconds. Our lives are short. Even if we don't compare them to the age of the universe, we sense that they're short. They feel long when we're very young, maybe. But it doesn't take long before we realize that they are short. And what do we do with that shortness? What is the significance and the meaning and, and, and what can be done about that. This passage, Genesis 5, demands that we wrestle with the question of the brevity of life and the inevitability of death. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first genealogy in the Bible. It's immediately followed up by the second the first genealogy was wrapping up what happened to the first family and traced the three most important descendants of Adam and Eve, Cain, Abel, and Seth. And this genealogy is tracing that line through Seth forward. It's moving us forward in history. The question isn't what became of the heavens and the earth. That was Genesis 2 through 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's what the text says. Now, this section answers a different question. The question is, what became of humanity itself? That's Genesis 5, 1 through 6, 8. This is the book of the generations of Adam, or man, or mankind. It becomes a little bit more clear if you read that first paragraph slowly a few times, each a different way. The first time, read that passage the, exactly the way it's written in your Bible. But then read it again a second time, and, and every time you see the word Adam, read the word man. And then the third time, every time you see the word man, read the word Adam. Because the, the word play is lost a little bit in English. That Adam, man, mankind, all one word in the Hebrew. And what became of man? That's the question. So as far as genealogies go, this is a pretty important genealogy. But, you protest, it's just this guy lived a bit, had a kid, lived a little bit longer, had some other kids along the way, and died over and over. You're right, mostly. It's mostly just that, but dwell on that for a second. Adam lived, and he died. Seth lived, and he died. Enosh lived, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. That phrase, and he died, appears, at least in the ESV, 25 times. Eight of them, nearly a third of them, are in chapter 5 of the book of Genesis. It's not a phrase that's used in 
any other genealogy in the Bible. Why would it be? We know when we read a genealogy, when we read a list of dead people, they're dead. It's kind of a foregone conclusion. But this passage wants to pound into our ears, to drill into our brains, to brand on our consciences that these men died. Adam, dead. Seth, dead. Methuselah lived a long time, still dead. Dead, dead, dead. They are all dead. Charlemagne, dead. Genghis Khan, dead. Isaac Newton, dead. Johann Sebastian Bach, dead. George Washington and King George III, dead and dead. There are something like 67 monarchs over England, all but one of whom are dead. There are 45 presidents over the United States, all but six of whom are dead, and five of those are above the average American life expectancy. Death is coming. Death is quite the theme in this passage, and it's quite the theme of this life, isn't it? It's also maybe striking. We took a break last week. But if you read it straight through, this comes right on the heels of the first death, the death of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. That first death, a murder was, was not exceptional. It was just going to be the first of many, many deaths, a curse that plagued and has plagued the human race. And it takes us back to Genesis 2. In Genesis chapter 3, we remember God's words to man about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and warning that in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die And we remember the serpent's blunt words and contradiction when speaking with Eve, you will not surely die. But as the Apostle Paul would write many years later, quoting old King David, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. God had spoken the truth. He always does. And it has proven true then also what Paul said, that death reigned through that one man. Death reigned from Adam on down to English football great Bobby Charlton, who died just yesterday. And he died, and he died, and he died. A little over 300 years before Hemingway's book, cleric and poet John Donne meditated on death and the church bells that would toll for the dead as he laid on his sickbed, his own life hanging in the balance. And noting the connection between himself and really all of humanity, how we're all connected, Dunn wrote, no man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or thine own were, any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Imagine writing two phrases. No man is an island and for whom the bell tolls in one paragraph that are known 400 years later. There are layers there, but you can be sure that your connection to ancient Adam means that the bell tolls for thee. Dunn 
survived that sickness in the winter of 1623. He went on to become a vicar then in the Church of England. And at age 59, he would preach maybe his most famous sermon, Death's Duel. And then in 1631, he died. And no one doubted for whom the bell tolled that day. Death is the inescapable, unrelenting, crushing force bearing down on each of us. Steve Irwin died at 44 of an unexpected sting from a ray fish directly into his heart. Robin Williams died at 53 from suicide brought on by Louis Body Dementia. Stanley Kubrick, a heart attack at 70. Kobe Bryant in a helicopter. Thomas Jefferson at 83 probably from a combination of ailments, some brought on from attempts at treatment. You don't want the details, I assure you. A teen died this week, a teen, who was shot a week ago in the Broadway neighborhood. Ian Malcolm taught us that life finds a way. Well, death does too. And there is this unrelenting pressed upon us theme in this chapter, but death is coming. But when we get down to the end of this list, there's another sobering reminder of life this side of the garden. Look at verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. That name Noah in Hebrew is a bit of a pun on the word for comfort. Often names in the Bible are meaningful, foreshadowing future events, or at least teasing us about where things could be going, how things might turn out. And we might wonder, were all these biblical parents prophets? But in a world full of death, the children were often named, at least formally, finally, after they had weaned. That was the extent of infant mortality at the time. So a parent might have had an idea of what sort of personality was bubbling up in the child. Noah's name, it, you know, sounding a bit like the word for comfort, might seem promising. But consider the, the, the comfort that Lamech desired, the, the comfort of relief from painful toil that came from working in earth, cursed by the Lord. It's a reminder that even in life, things could be and would be bad. They'd be hard. These men are recorded to have lived long lives, and I'm not going to get into the significance or, or meaning or the, the layers of that this morning. I, I'm willing to chat with you about that afterward if you want or, or another time, but I, but I do think it's important to note, whether the, you take the years as literal or figurative or symbolic, these men lived, likely had well-regarded lifespans, and often suffered through those long lives. And why? Because their patriarch, man, Adam, sinned, rebelled against the Lord and the Lord's good rule. And as a result, the Lord pronounced a curse on the ground that would make providing ourselves with our basic necessities difficult. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Those were the words of the Lord to Adam. We know work can be hard. We've all lived it. Very little comes truly easily, and that leads to frustration. And frustration leads to sinners like us venting our frustrations being short with our coworkers, gossiping and grousing instead of sharing and supporting. Disease can make going to work impossible. Drought dries up crops and spikes food prices. We fight with technology that doesn't seem to cooperate with us. Technology that promised to make life easier has only created new frustrations, new pains, and new jobs. 
And so Lamech, the ninth generation, was realizing that God's word was true. Life is hard. And then we die. I trust also you know the story of Noah, which we're coming to soon enough. I don't know any secret about that story, no deeper meaning, uh, no cute interpretation that I can give you that tells us how Noah brought comfort. Maybe, maybe you could say that in Noah's faithfulness, he was comfort for his immediate family. But Lamech didn't live to see that. And the more straightforward reading of, of Noah's story is that in his day, the only comfort that was provided was the escape from the toilsome life in the waters of a flood. There was a promise, hope for comfort that wasn't realized. But look back to the beginning. Look back to the beginning of the chapter because I want you to see something. Adam's line is a little bit longer than the others, and it, and it deviates from the pattern, doesn't it? It doesn't have that exact same pattern of he lived, he had a son, he lived some more, and then he died. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. We don't want to be too quick to skip over that. Because rather than pointing us to Genesis 3 and everything that went wrong, the fall, the curses, this little statement points us back to Genesis 1, the creation, God's image, and blessing. In that first chapter, God created human beings in his image. In some way, human beings reflected God's nature and, and his character. And since we saw that it was immediately connected with the idea of ruling creation, it, it seems like humans... Uh, our status as image bearers is connected to our ability and our command to rule. We were made to rule like God rules, not in God's place, but under God, uh, in the way that vice regents rule under a king and in the name of a king. We're reminded that this status was not connected with man as male, but with man as human. Because the language floats between the singular and the plural. Uh, a male was made first, but the first pair were equally made in God's image. And God blessed that first couple. And that first couple walked away from him. In fact, one of the, the themes of the book of Genesis, maybe the theme, I think some would argue, is blessing. About 20% of the references to blessing in the entire Old Testament occur here in the book of Genesis. But where are they? God blesses the animals in chapter 1. God blesses human beings made in his image in chapter 1. God blesses the Seventh day, the Sabbath, at the very beginning of chapter 2, but if somebody had organized the chapter divisions better, that would be chapter 1 also. And then there's nothing else in 2. There's nothing in 3. There's nothing in 4. And there's only a mention of it in chapter 5 as sort of a callback to chapter 1. In fact, blessing won't really reappear until chapter 9. And so, almost all of those numerous references to blessing take place before the fall and after Noah. Something is missing. But the restatement of that blessing at the top of chapter 5 is hopeful. 
it suggests that there's something that could still be had, something that's still out there, something that's still available if we can just find it. So also hopeful is the birth of Seth. After all, back in chapter 1, it said, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And so God's blessing was in part tied to reproduction. The existence of Seth then suggests that not all of the blessing is irrevocably destroyed. God didn't just wipe man out. He didn't just destroy Adam. They're still going to be fruitful. They're still going to multiply. And in fact, the text stresses that Adam's son, Seth, was in his image. On the surface, of course, his son resembles his father. We know that. But in light of Genesis 1, it means that the image of God that was imprinted on Adam and his wife is also passed on to his son. There is still something of the divine image imprinted on each human life, giving us dignity, value, honor, and purpose, no matter how weak, no matter how strong, no matter how known or unknown, no matter how loved or hated, that life has value. And there's a sense in these words that God is not yet done with his special creation. If we bear the mark of God, then maybe God is still interested in what's his. And that, if not good news, is at least hopeful news. And then we get to the seventh from Adam. If you skip your genealogies in, in your Bible readings, you miss these things, right? Read them. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. There's one man that completely breaks the pattern. One man whose story is at odds with everyone else's story. One man who lived far shorter than all of his known relatives. One man, though, who did not die. And what do we know about this man's life? He walked with God. There must be more, right? That can't, that can't be the whole thing, right? Some, something, something else that we're not being told here, right? Well, the, the ancients certainly thought so. I mean, you have this, this mysterious figure, such a perplexing character. This, this man must have been significant. This man must have been a big deal, right? And so sometime, probably during the 300 years or so before Jesus was born, there was a book written that is known as the Book of Enoch. That's way after Enoch ever lived, by the way. No matter what time scale you use. And in the Book of Enoch, it recounts that Enoch is this great prophet who spoke of judgment, who went on mystical voyages in the heavens and was given secret knowledge from God. Ah, he was a great man. Not to be outdone, two more books about Enoch are known, referred to sometimes as Second Enoch and Third Enoch. They were written even later. Then another uh, work called The Book of Giants also makes reference to Enoch. And we might put this under the general heading of ancient holy fan fiction. What about God's word? Does God's word say anything else about Enoch? Is this really it? Not quite. He comes up four more times. He's, he, he's listed in a genealogy of Israel in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Just passing mention. And he's listed in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. Passing mention. And then in the New Testament letter written by Jesus' brother Jude, there's a, 
a reference to Enoch with a, a quote or at least an allusion to that first book of Enoch. And, and, and most Christian scholars see that Jude is just a, a appealing to a text that his readers would have been familiar with. But it's, it's interesting. But then there's this mention of him that, that Amy read for us this morning in Hebrews 11. If you know Hebrews 11, uh, you, you probably know that it's the faith chapter, a list of people who honored God with their faith. And, and so here's what we read. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So the author of Hebrews mostly tells us what we already know from Genesis chapter 5. Enoch was taken by God. So what doesn't the text say? It doesn't say that Enoch built a great city or a great business. He didn't conquer the enemy in battle. Enoch didn't raise children. He became doctors and lawyers and presidents. He didn't have a huge salary. He didn't have large property. He didn't have many cars or camels. Or if he did have any of those things, we're not told about them. They evidently were not important enough to mention. One thing is important enough to mention. One thing is more important than any test score that he received at the Near Eastern Antediluvian University. One thing is more important than his retirement account or what he left to Methuselah and his siblings in the will. One thing was worth taking up a couple inches of papyrus and the corresponding ink. Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In the midst of all this death and, and, and desperation, Enoch walked with God, and God took him. And since we have so few details about Enoch, we really ought to focus carefully on the ones that we have rather than make up new ones like the ancients did. And that's easier said than done because the idea of walking with God, or with anyone for that matter, is actually a really unusual, strange expression in the Hebrew. You might be familiar with a a famous passage that's been particularly well known in the last five or ten years from Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Sometimes we look at that as a close parallel. This is going to sound tiny, but but that that word with there in Micah 6.8 is a different word with. (laughs) They had more than one with. And it might be a similar idea, but there's, there's something unique about Enoch. In fact, the, the exact idea is used only one other time in chapter 6 about Noah. A similar phrase occurs in 1 Samuel. Maybe you remember this story where, where David's men walk with Nabal's men. We covered that chapter earlier this year. Abigail, Nabal's wife, tells him that as long as his men, who were shepherds, walked with David's men, David's men protected them and Nabal's property. It's not a lot to go on, but it it suggests that there was at least friendly relations and a knowledge maybe of who was really in charge. If you remember the story, Nabal thought he was a big deal, but David was the man who was going to be king. But I don't think we need to look for any great secret here either. 
walking itself in the Bible is often a metaphor for conducting one's life. It's almost synonymous with living. But the emphasis is more on how we go about the ins and outs of our existence. Just as you walk down the sidewalk, you, you navigate the, the cracks and the bumps and the sticks and the branches of the squirrels. You know, and so how you place your steps is you know, how you make your way from point A to point B. And so looking at life like a, a journey and the decisions and, and the steps that you have to take along the way are the route, the path, and the winding of it. So living in that sense. And so Enoch then, if, he, if he's walking with God, if he walked with God, then Enoch carried out his life with God. What does that mean? I, at least three things, uh, probably a lot more. It suggests proximity, though, doesn't it? You don't walk with anyone who's not near. You can't walk with somebody in China if you are in Cleveland. You walk with somebody who is near to you. And so there is proximity. Spiritually, Enoch was near to God. How was he near to God in proximity? We can simply look at what the saints have done for centuries now and how we draw near to God. We draw near to God by consuming his word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. We might know where God is going to go with him because we know his word. It would be strange to be on a journey with uh, someone over a long distance, over 365 years, and not say something. And so we know that the saints have for long uh, drawn near to God in prayer. We pray. We, we speak our adoration, our love and praise of God. We confess our sins. We give God our thanksgiving. We ask God to provide our needs and to heal us in our weakness because we know that he is that kind of God. It means we practice other things uh, that we have sometimes called spiritual disciplines, habits of remembering what we are, who we are, and who we're called to be in our worship and in our fasting and in our meditation on God. Enoch's life with God, his walking with God implies at least a proximity that is marked by the things that are familiar with the people of God. Reliance on God's word as much as Enoch had of it and knew it and communing with God in prayer and worshiping God in spirit and truth. I think it also means pleasure. Enoch derived pleasure in walking with God because no one would sustain such an activity unless it was forced or it was pleasurable. And it's not forced because Adam died, Seth died, Enosh died, Canaan died, Mahalalel died, Jared died, Methuselah died, Lamech died, Noah eventually dies. Enoch does not. So there is an exception here. These men were not forced one way or another. So why did Enoch walk with God? It was good 
to him. It was pleasurable to him. It was pleasing for Enoch to be in the company of God. He enjoyed God. You would not take a walk of any significant distance with somebody that you could not stand. You might, out of courtesy, walk them to their car or down to the end of the block, but you are not going to walk the Appalachian Trail with somebody that you cannot put up with. And so Enoch found pleasure and delight in God. Did he delight in anything else? We don't know. Because the only thing we know about Enoch is that he walked with God, and he was not. It's the only thing that matters. Charles Spurgeon uh, points to a third thing that uh, I think he's right on the money about, that walking anywhere involved progress. I don't quote Spurgeon very much, so let me quote him at length here. He says, if a man walks either by himself or with anybody else, he makes progress. He goes forward. Enoch walked with God. At the end of 200 years, he was not where he began. He was in the same company, but he had gone forward in the right way. At the end of the third hundred years, Enoch enjoyed more, understood more, loved more, had received more, and could give out more, for he had gone forward in all respects. A man who walks with God will necessarily grow in grace and in the knowledge of God and in likeness to Christ. You cannot suppose a perpetual walk with God year after year without the favored person being strengthened, sanctified, instructed, and rendered more able to glorify God. So I gather that Enoch's life was a life of spiritual progress. He went from strength to strength and made headway in the gracious pilgrimage. May God grant us to be pressing onward ourselves. It's a simple point. If we walk, we are at a different place than where we began, unless we walk in a circle, but then still things have changed, haven't they? And if we walk with someone else, we walk to a different place with them. And that is no doubt true if we walk with God. And I, I might add, if I dare to add on to Spurgeon, that when you walk with another person, it could be that they are following you. It could be that you are following them. Or there could be a mutual togetherness, whether stated or implied, you're just kind of side by side. But with God, he is the sovereign. He is the king. God orders his own steps, and he orders ours. Uh, we don't order God's steps. So if we walk with God, what does it mean except that we are going God's direction, not God going our direction? And that is a fantastic voyage. The author of Hebrews calls this faith. And that's not an unfair reading. Biblical faith is belief and trust. Belief and trust. And, and to walk with someone, you need to have a belief that they are real. If you are walking with someone who is not real, we have treatments. So you believe that they're real. But you also have to trust that where they are leading is good or advantageous. 
If your friend says, let's walk up to the precipice of the Grand Canyon and then, and then just walk out across it, you're not going to follow them. You might believe that your friend is real, but you do not trust that walking out over the air of the Grand Canyon is good advice. Rightly so. And so Enoch, to walk with God, needed both belief that God was real and trust that where God was going was someplace he wanted to go, someplace he wanted to be, something advantageous for him. That is faith. And so Enoch, this, this, this little unknown guy in the middle of this chapter, holds out hope for us that death may not be inevitable. Or at least it may not be final. It might not be the end of all things. If we walk with God. In Romans Chapter 6, Paul writes this, We were buried, therefore, with him, Christ, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And then skipping down a few verses, Do not Present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those, as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Where am I going with that? If Enoch holds out this promise that death may not be final, then we are looking for what it means, how to access this belief and this faith that allows him to walk with God, allows him to escape the finality of death. And Paul says that there is some way that these people he's writing to have moved from death to life. They, they have escaped it somehow. How is that? In that same chapter of Hebrews 11, the, the, the foundation uh, of belief there, the, the, the primal example of, of belief and faith is Abraham, whose faith was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Notice, it, it wasn't that Abraham was intrinsically righteous. He wasn't perfect in all of his ways like God is, but, but in some way God took his faith and counted that as righteousness on his ledger in his book in place of his actual righteousness. How does that work? It's a mystery until we get to the cross. The Old Testament is filled with mysteries, these, these questions, these, these, these examples. We're, we're dying to know how to not die. And there's this, these hints, these promises that somehow in this faithfulness to God, in this walking with God, we can escape death. This death that is the punishment, well-deserved, for our rebellion against God. The rebellion we were born into as being part of the rebellious tribe called man and the rebellion that we ourselves bring to the table with our own scheming of how we think we're going to win that war. We're not. But God embarked on a rescue mission, a rescue mission that involved God himself taking on flesh, living like us. The perfect God suffering through all of the frustrations and toils of this hard life. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, that he might 
demonstrate what a righteous life on the merits looks like. And he goes to the cross and he suffers again. He is estranged from the Father because the sins of hundreds of thousands or millions or billions or for all we know, trillions of sinners are placed on Christ. So that those who trust in him have his righteousness counted on their behalf. And though they rightly deserve this sentence of death, they move, as Paul says, from death to life. We may not be taken away like Enoch. Noah wasn't. The only other person the exact same phrase is used of. Noah does not have that same fate. Why Enoch is that precisely unique, I don't know. But what I do know is he escaped death. And we can, we can read right here at the end. Christ returns in Revelation 20. John sees this vision. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their forehead or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign for him for a thousand years. Then we skip down, and the judgment comes And it says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one of them, according to what they had done, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This life, this death that we experience is just a, a, a foretaste. It's just a, it's just a tangible uh, uh, aspect of a more final, more real life and a more final and real death. And those who place their trust in Christ can walk with God and enjoy the fruits of Christ's resurrection to new life, a life that will not be removed. Let's pray. Father, may we taste that life that cannot be taken away. Sober us to the realities of death. We don't like to think about it. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. But it's real. It's part of this experience. 
don't allow us to carry on as if it's something that won't happen, as if it's something that doesn't matter, as if it's something that's a long way away because this life is short and it takes us in surprising ways. But give in us a hope that cannot be taken, though we die, a hope for a resurrection from that dead, a first resurrection over whom the second death has no power. Father, give us not only confidence in that, but I pray specifically for those who have not walked with you and are fearing the inevitability of death as they should. Would you give in them by your spirit a new heart that they might walk with you and be blameless, not because they are so good, but because Jesus was so good in their place. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.